When I was at uni in the early 2000s, my friend Jonathan and I used to spend whole evenings just driving, just driving around Canberra, most of the time listening to Missy Elliott's Under Construction, which was this crazy popular album at the time. And Jonathan's one of those guys, I love these kinds of guys, one of those guys that uh, people describe as intense. I think that's probably why he and I have been friends for so long. People tell me I'm intense. He's an intense dude. We got along perfectly. When Jonathan gets into something, he gets into it. And one of the topics I remember him being particularly into at that time because he discussed it at length while we were on these drives, was this narrative around this thing, which was at the time referred to as peak oil. When they they think about oil, uh, think of when we're going to run out. And really that's the wrong question to ask. When you drill your first well, if the oil's close to the surface under pressure, you get a gusher. You drill more wells, the uh, pressure goes down, the table goes down. Pulls so up what quite also gets more and more, more out, it, then you reach this peak or plateau. You can find any number of explanations about it online. Uh, I'll have a crack at it. Essentially, the way I understand it, and I did, I did listen to Jonathan talk about this for just hours, but um, I can't, I still can't really nail it. But essentially what I understand is there's a finite amount of oil that we as human beings can use. And there's a point at which um, we're going to find all of it or as much of it as we can use. And after that, the supply starts going down, but the demand stays the same or actually goes up because there's more people. So prices skyrocket. Uh, Something, something... The world explodes, everybody dies, I drop Jonathan off at his house. People disagree about whether we have already passed peak oil or whether peak oil was ever really a concern. I mean, in 2022, this idea seems almost cute, right? Because it's like, oh, the future is so scary. Later on, things will be terrible. Let's think about that. Like, it's indulgent, right? But driving around in my 1988 Ford Laser, listening to Missy, I was completely convinced that we were screwed. This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but with Jonathan refusing to shut up. So there are probably a whole bunch of problems with the peak oil theory that that I can't understand. But when I uh, look at it with my my meager understanding, what strikes me is that this is an idea that is... um, It's based on a premise of a too stable future. Like the people who came up with this didn't foresee, for example, that there would be a time in which nobody would drive anywhere, nobody would fly anywhere, so we didn't need so much oil. So it was too comfortable, made too many assumptions that things were going to stay the same, that there wasn't going to be an event that that changed everything that we couldn't foresee. Which brings me to slightly less popular than he used to be, public intellectual Nicholas Nassim Taleb. Taleb wrote this book called The Black Swan. He now seems to spend his time on Twitter uh, pointing and laughing at people who are, as he terms it, intellectual yet idiots. 
IYI. Basically, his thing is, oh, look at this person. They think they're so smart, but they can't see the common sense result of this thing that they're talking about. He's pretty annoying. And he will tell you, even though you didn't ask, that there are these things called black swan events. And they're called that because they're events that simply aren't on our radar, like a pandemic or a 9-11 or a 2008 financial crash. I've spent a lot of time listening to someone talk about black swan events. Um, That person's name is Tom. The other side of the black swan event is that when you look back, it feels like you should have seen it coming. So, you know that scene in The Big Short with Margot Robbie in the bath telling us all the reasons that the financial crash was set to go off? There were all these pieces and they all fit together and then they all equaled 2008. But then they started running out of mortgages to put in them. After all, there are only so many homes and so many people with good enough jobs to buy them, right? So the banks started filling these bonds with riskier and riskier mortgages. Thank you, Andrew. That way, they can keep that profit machine churning. And yet, like some people knew that that was coming, but most of us had absolutely no idea. And then we look back and we think, oh, of course, we were primed for that. That's the thing about the Black Swan is Black Swan events are unimaginable until they happen. Just like... You know, when Europeans came over to Australia and they saw the black swan, they were like, of course there's black swans. Yeah, I didn't, I never, I never thought about that, but there are black ones. What a surprise. So here's my theory. I think poetry has been through a black swan event in the last five, ten-ish years probably sounds super dramatic but if you think about it stuff that looks totally normal to us now was pretty much unimaginable 10 years ago even five years ago I started thinking about all this when Adam sent me an episode of that Slate podcast Decoder Ring which is really schmick and uh, shiny And this episode, which came out just last week, is called The Most Famous Poet No One Remembers. And it's really nice. It's about this poet, Rod McEwen. He was really popular in the late 60s and early 70s. In the words of the presenter, that's when he peaked. And that's peaked in the easier to understand sense of the word. A peak in popularity, this fever pitch moment, after which there's a long downhill slide, basically into obscurity. But it wasn't so much Rod McEwen's story, which is really interesting, but it wasn't that story that really struck me. I was more interested in the way that everyone on the show was talking about poets and poetry. Like, poetry is just this thing that everyone listening has some level of engagement with, right? Like movies or music. And I thought, since when does a podcast like Dakota Ring that's basically appealing to the broadest audience that it can want to talk about poetry. And then I started thinking about um, the conversation I had with Rachel Nielsen last year about Instagram poets and my conversation with Justin Clemens where we talked about Amanda Gorman. And 
the stuff I was talking about last week about Curtis Yarvin using poetry to create the sense of glamour around his message. And then I started looking up poets on TikTok. And just like on Instagram, I started seeing these accounts with millions and millions of followers and views. And I just thought, something has seriously changed here. Maybe it'll make this clearer if we actually rewind and go back to 10 years ago. I found this article by the poet Bronwyn Lee, published in The Conversation back then. It's called Poetry Bestsellers and Other Oxymorons. Here's how it starts. Anyone with a vague sense of book publishing is acquainted with the orthodoxy that poetry doesn't sell. Readers don't want to read it. Commercial publishers have used this pearl to justify curtailing or, more dramatically, cancelling their poetry lists. Booksellers have relied on it as a way of explaining away, to the few who might inquire, their thin and often uninspired poetry stock. And who can blame them? Publishers and booksellers are not in the business of charity. But all this bellyaching conceals an interesting fact. Some poetry books actually do sell. Some sell very well indeed. Some poetry books are even bestsellers. So how does Bronwyn Lee back up this argument? She cites examples of poetry that actually does fit this category, and they include Shakespeare, Rumi, and a Lebanese poet who I hadn't actually heard of, Khalil Gibran, whose poems are often used in weddings. And then to round out the list, Bromwell mentions none other than Michael Lunig, uh, who I used to think was funny, but um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not really into Lunig anymore. But yeah, in 2012, Lunig was great. Instagram was two years old. Uh, it didn't have an algorithm even. The photos that you saw were the photos of the people who you followed. And uh, you eventually ran out of stuff to scroll. If you need a sense memory for 2012, well, look, I don't even have to play the real song as it was recorded. I could just do this. Remember when you would, like, do you remember how big this song was? Do you remember you would be in Coles, like trying to buy toilet paper, and then this would start happening, and all of a sudden, you'd be here. And they just played it over and over and over again. So how do we get from 2012 to now? How do we get from a situation where the poetry section includes Shakespeare, Lunig, and what Bronwyn calls spirituality light poetry to what we have now? The poetry black swan, I think, happened when a particular kind of online culture got hold of those self-help spirituality light poems that Bronwyn Lee was talking about. And it was at this point that I was going to dive into these TikTok poems and, and look at who was making them and um, what they're talking about and give you some examples, you know, shove a few in. But I don't know, like, 
the fact is these are teenage girls making these posts and and communicating with one another they are talking to each other or maybe just to themselves they're essentially saying you know just accept yourself how you are you're perfect you're beautiful um there's nothing wrong with you and everything's going to be okay and well first of all I just feel creepy looking at them at all but but secondly like I just don't want to make fun of that um or speak ill of it at all I I went around to um my best friend from high school's house on Friday uh her name is also Alice we're born two days apart and I was asking her like what do you remember about sort of the instruction manual for being a young woman when we were that age and we basically decided like you had two options you had tank girl slash daria at one end and then you had britney spears and christina aguilera at the other and yeah i was definitely never cool enough to be tank girl and i was never going to look like britney or christina yeah we just spent a lot of time um walking around in anime t-shirts hoping that uh, no one would notice us we were certainly not ever talking about self-acceptance all of which is to say like i'm glad that young women are are talking about self-acceptance in their posts i don't want to be grinch about that um it does get slightly harder to be enthusiastic when you follow the money. So I looked at the Amazon bestseller list in the poetry category and wow, there are a lot of books that are very near the top of the list and they look almost exactly the same as Milk and Honey by Rupi Kaur. So Milk and Honey is, I think, the second highest selling poetry book on that list um, after Dr. Seuss. Uh, there is like the Odyssey and the Iliad are in there, but I don't know. Part of me is like, I think that's because people have to buy them for school, <laughs> not because they're sitting around going, you know what I want to do today? I really want to read the Odyssey. Yeah, 100%. No, I don't think that's what's happening. But yeah, there are these other books that look almost exactly the same as milk and honey because you know it's got that lowercase font the black cover with the white hand-drawn image on it like if you were a mum looking to get a um a poetry book for your teenage daughter and you just had like a sense of what the book looked like but you weren't exactly sure you could quite easily come back with the wrong thing you could come back with um permission to love you could come back with, you'll come back to yourself. Uh, you might end up bringing home, healing is a gift. Or the things I didn't say in therapy. Like all these books look exactly the same and they look just like milk and honey. Like it's gross. It's gross. The, the cynicism is just like vibrating. It's awkward because on the one hand, uh, you don't want to be a Grinch. And then the, on the other hand, there's this, this thing of, of watching people kind of milk their 
um, self-loathing and then self-acceptance and that kind of like circling around that over and over again and then that gets monetized and and then you have to kind of perform that to continue to make money and that that seems exhausting but look I, I don't engage with this stuff um, so it's it's not for me to say maybe one day I'll get to talk to um, an Instagram poet who's hyper successful and I can ask them what it feels like to do that day in, day out. I imagine it's not very fun. My point is, I think we're on the other side of a poetry black swan event because we've gone from the dusty book of Rumi on the shelf that nobody wants to buy to poetry is just a thing people do. And I think there have definitely been, well, I know there have definitely been many moments in the past when poetry has been at this kind of fever pitch, this this loudness. In the episode that we did about um, Robert Lowell and Elizabeth Bishop, he was talking about the beats. They are phony in a way because they have made a lot of publicity out of very little talent. But in another way, they are pathetic and doomed. How can you make a go for so long by reciting so-so verse to half-jeering swarms of college students? However, they are trying, I guess, to write poetry. There was an awful lot of subdued talk about their being friends and lovers. I think they'll die of TB. Oofed. I know. <laughs> it basically sounds like he's talking about Insta-poets. Poetry's really loud right now. And in some ways that could be a good thing. You know, there's that thinking that runs. You get into poetry through... Instagram or TikTok and then maybe you read something by Amanda Gorman maybe then you read Ocean Vong's new book um, I'm not really sure who you go to from there though like I thought about maybe Morgan Parker might be or, or Ada Limon might be another example um, I do wonder though whether there's a limit like if it's a gateway gateway to where how many steps down that path can you go before you just kind of get bored because what you find is, is not what you came for. But look, if you, um, just because I am not into TikTok poetry or Insta poetry and I don't understand where it leads people as readers, um, doesn't mean that that doesn't happen. So if you're somebody who started there and ended up here listening to me, uh, please tell me. I would love to talk to you because, yeah, I don't, I don't want to sound crotchety. I am kind of programmed that way, though, because I was a teenager in the 90s. I'm conditioned to believe that when everybody else likes something, that's a bad thing. Like even now when I see some 12-year-old kid wearing a Nevermind T-shirt, I'm kind of, this is part of me that's like, oh, but you, you don't know anything about Nirvana, like, you don't even know about Kurt Cobain. <laughs> like, this person's 12. <laughs> you know, it's a thing of like, that's not your thing, that's my thing. You're not a real fan, you don't get it. Only I understand what he means when he says, a mosquito, my libido. This poor little kid's like, oh my God, when will this, when will this woman go away? Because 
Nirvana is not a limited substance. My listening to Nirvana doesn't have any impact on your listening to Nirvana. And poetry is not a limited substance either. It's not like oil. The money attached to poetry might be limited, but very definitely is limited. I've talked about the money question quite a bit recently. But when you think it through, right, like TikTok poetesses, as they call themselves sometimes, are not coming for your Australia Council grant. And young women who are just telling each other to accept themselves just the way they are, they're not stealing my audience. They're not taking readers away from your next collection. When you talk about this stuff, you you inevitably end up at this point where you're talking about what is and isn't poetry and getting your knickers in a twist, but like millions and millions of people don't care. They're just watching this stuff. They're just liking this stuff, reading it, scrolling past it. Um, They've decided that it is poetry. So what does it matter if I don't think it is? But it is uncomfortable. It's definitely uncomfortable. And that's the thing about black swans. Nobody invites them in. They just show up and you have to deal with them as best you can. They're, they're really uncomfortable. But poetry has definitely been this loud before. And I was, I was thinking about a couple of examples. And the one I landed on to end, I talked a little tiny bit about him in a previous episode. This is a guy who wrote a book uh, back in the, the late 1890s. At first, it sold poorly. It got some critical acclaim, but it basically, like, they had to buy up the, the last copies. And then somebody decided to print 500 more for, for some reason that I don't fully understand. And, and that sold out. And then they printed 1,000, and that sold out. And then they printed 2,000, and that sold out. And then eventually this book was a bestseller. I feel like I'm stepping on Matthew's toes here, but... I'm talking about the book A Shropshire Lad by A.E. Hausman. And I'm going to end with a little poem from it, which I think is fantastic. I, yeah, like I say, I, I feel like I'm stepping on your toes here, Matthew. I feel like maybe you, I think you talked about this once. I don't know. I can't remember. It's called When I Watch the Living Meat. It goes like this. When I Watch the Living Meat and the moving pageant file warm and breathing through the street where I lodge a little while. If the heats of hate and lust in the house of flesh are strong, let me mind the house of dust where my sojourn shall be long. In the nation that is not, nothing stands that stood before. There, revenges are forgot and the hater hates no more. Lovers lying two and two ask not whom they sleep beside, and the bridegroom all night through never turns him to the bride. This is um this is definitely quite a dark note to end on, and I'm sorry for that. But what I take from this poem, which I really, really, really love, is well a couple of things. First of all, there's only one thing that you can actually predict about the future. Only one thing that you know for sure. 
And then the other part of it is, yeah, there is going to be heats of hate and lust. There's going to be drama. There's going to be peaks and troughs, incredible highs, incredible lows. Uh, It all ends in the same place. And I don't think that this is quite in the poem, but I'm going to put it there anyway. When I read this, I don't, I don't so much um, mind the house of dust as remember to stay in the here and now and, and try, try <laughs> to appreciate it uh, as uncomfortable as it might be. Because, you know, I miss driving around in my 1988 Ford Laser with Jonathan. Um, That car is long gone. It's a rusting cube somewhere in a junkyard now. And yeah, I don't know if I like fully understood at the time just how great that was. But Missy Elliott is still really great. Yeah, what's the deal, y'all? This is Missy Elliott. Giving y'all magazine writers, radio cats, listeners, or plain old haters a small piece of, of my album, which is titled Under Construction. Under Construction simply states that I'm a work in progress. I'm working on myself. You know, uh, ever since Aaliyah passed, I view life in a, a more valuable way. Looking at hate and anger and gossip or just plain old bullshit became ignorant to me. When you realize in a blink of an eye you walking down a church aisle. And-